Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show. I'm Scott Agnes with Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison steering the ship here. NFL free agency. You got the transfer portal is the hot place to be, but so too are the brackets. You've probably filled out one or you're doing that here in the next couple of days. And there are a few better to bring on and talk about his methodology and all that, plus a preview of the games and Andy Bottoms. He's on the Assembly Call podcast as well as a bracketologist, which you can see it inside the hall. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Let's just get your initial reactions here to to Sunday. It looked like you had a very successful time in terms of predicting where everyone would ultimately end up. How long have you been doing that, and where do you get the biggest joy of that? Because we all know that's a year-round thing. That's not something that you can just start doing in January or February. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think score-wise this year, I think I did as well as I've done. I think this was my 11th, maybe 12th year uh, of doing it. But I think uh, there's also a lot of people, as you, as you watch the scores over time, I think everybody's gotten better and certainly a lot more people involved. I think about 230 or so uh, this year we're in it. So, and, and you're right, it really starts with looking at all the preseason stuff to try to figure out which teams to track it. It obviously doesn't make a ton of sense to try to track everybody, but at least whittling that down at the beginning of the year and trying to keep up with uh, key wins along the way and, and different things like that. So uh, the biggest uh, joy of it is probably when it's over. To be honest with you. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the last few days, there's a lot going on and it's, it's, it's a lot of time as the games wind down to second guess yourself. And uh, it, it's like anything else in life. A lot of times the, the last minute change that you make, you probably should have just stuck with your instinct. So it, it, it falls a little bit in that category. Andy, it's Jimmy. I know you were live tweeting a bit with, some of the regions or surprises that caught your eye and obviously mentioned how well you did and what you had flip-flop versus the committee. But in terms of seating that you felt was egregious either way or the other, too high or too low, uh, what jumped out at you the most on Selection Sunday? Yeah, the, the two that I missed by two seed lines were Florida Atlantic, uh, who I had as a seven, um, and then Texas A&M, who I think I had as a five and, and came out as a seven. I think the Texas A&M went to me, if you look at all the information and and you say the committee took the opportunity to, to punish a team that didn't really play anybody in the non-conference, especially on the heels of the way Buzz Williams handled not making the tournament last year. Uh, I'll give you that one. And maybe that's something that I should have seen, or at least should have had him as a six instead of a seven. I think the, the Florida Atlantic one to me is tough. I, I, you look at these teams in, in smaller conferences, they had been on the rise a bit in, in recent years uh, as Dusty Mays built a, a solid program there. And, and to, somewhat penalize them for not getting or not playing enough good non-conference games, not beating enough good teams in a non-conference when teams are not going to want to play them. Uh, I know one of the other guys I did the show on Field of the 68 with tweeted back to me and said uh, he had been in contact with somebody there. They'd reached out to tons of top 100 schools, and I want to say like 40 or 60 of them said no, um, but they didn't want to play them. So I I struggle with a team that goes – 31 and three overall, just 29. They had they played a couple of non-D1 games. So they're 29 and three overall. Uh, one at Florida, won their conference uh, pretty handily, and uh, I just thought 
if it felt like a team they'd given sixes or sevens to in previous years. Think, think of like a Murray State or a Buffalo a few years ago. That was kind of in in the back of my head with that thought process. But I, you know, some of these other teams, you can point to Texas A&M and say you should have done this differently. I'm not sure what you could point to for Florida Atlantic and say you should have done this differently and you could have been seated higher. Talking with Andy Bottoms of Inside the Hall and Assembly Call. Andy, I'm curious, is there an overriding factor? There's so many stats that go into this, all these numbers, tier one wins, quad one wins, all those different things. One, I I believe they should simplify the whole thing so fans can really have a better grasp of maybe things that go into it. But do you have a couple overriding factors that you weigh maybe heavily more, or better yet, I should say, maybe the committee weighs heavily? Uh, Yeah, it's... A lot of times they'll say it comes back to, you know, who you played, where you played them, and, and who you beat. Uh, and I think that, I guess, is is true overall. Um, I think there are just so many different factors as they put more of the different um, predictive or results-based metrics on the team sheets. I think that gives them more information, but I also think you look at that at times and you're not totally sure how that's being used. And a lot of times people have – looked at stuff and said, you know, the results-based metrics. So, uh, like, strength of record uh, is, is one of those. You know, that really factors more in from a, a selection process. So, if you're ranked high in those, you're going to get selected. And then they've used some of the predictives, the, you know, Ken Palms, uh, BPI, uh, Sager, and things like that to, to do more of the seeding. I don't know that I saw that in large part this year. I think Texas A&M, again, is probably a good example of that. They ranked really high in all those, particularly – as the year went on and it wasn't there. So there's a lot of different information. If you go and look at what all they see on the team sheets, it's a ton of stuff. Uh, and and I think that makes it hard, one, as you said, for people to follow, and two, hard for people who are trying to predict the field and the seating to kind of understand what does this particular iteration of the committee view differently than maybe one has in the past. And the only glimpse you really get into that is that top 16 reveal that they do right after the Super Bowl. And uh, so, so for me, you know, this year, I think the, you know, quality, you know, quad one wins definitely were important. This committee seemed to face uh, or place a good amount of emphasis on, on really high end road wins. And I think a few of the teams either based on seating or in the case of like a Rutgers getting left out was at least somewhat uh, based on the non-conference strength, the schedule uh, that a team does have some control over. And I think in Rutgers' case, it was also the injury to Mawat Mag that ultimately pushed them out. Andy, I'm having you simulate to the round of 32 here, but when you look at the top overall seeds, the one seeds in each region, and you look at the toughest opponent they could face in the round of 32, who's in the most danger when you look at eight nines that could face these number ones in the round of 32? Uh, I, I think um, this is going to sound cliche for the guy who does an IU postgame show to come on and talk about <laughs> Purdue being in trouble. So I feel like this was the setup, but I, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, I, I do think uh, Memphis is playing really well. I, you know, I think that's the, the other downside of Florida Atlanta. They get paired up with a with arguably the best eight seed uh, in Memphis. He's played well. He's got Kendrick Davis, who's a really good guard. They can put some pressure on a little bit. That's something that Purdue struggled with, and certainly in the end of the uh, the, the Big Ten tournament final. Uh, I think Memphis could probably give Purdue a better game than a, than a Florida Atlanta could if, if that game is there. Uh, I don't really, you know, Houston, unless Marcus Sasser is out, uh, I think they have probably, them and Alabama probably have the easiest. And I think Kansas, uh, you, you've got Arkansas, who's been a little bit up and down. The predictive metrics really like them. They've had some injuries with Nick Smith uh, being being out of the lineup for part of the year. Illinois is one who... Seems like they should probably be better than what they are. I think either of them could potentially give Kansas an interesting game. 
but I'd probably say Purdue maybe is the most at risk if it's Memphis that wins. Joined with Andy Bottoms, bracketologist inside the Hall Assembly call here on the Fan Midday Show. I'm curious, what do you, what do you think just in general about this tournament field? We're, we're seeing uh, some of the talent, for example, go elsewhere, like to G League Ignite, to Overtime Elite, things like that. That has removed some of the top players away from college basketball. Do you see that impacting maybe the talent disparity one way or the other when in, when you consider potential upsets out there with your 512s or, or anything like that? What do you think about all that situation? Yeah, I, I think there's probably an element of that. I, I think to a certain extent, the other thing you've got that's unique in these last few years about college basketball is one, the transfers, and two, having so many older players who have been around for a while and have taken advantage of the COVID year and things like that. So I think you've got a different level of experience uh, on some teams, maybe more so than what you've had in the past. And in general, this was a year where, you, you look at even a team like IU and say an 11 loss team is a four seed. And I think in a lot of cases in years past, that wouldn't have been the case. There just weren't that many teams who had very few losses this year. And so I think you see a ton of teams across the field in that, you know, nine to, to 12 loss range. And I think that speaks a little bit to the, the parody overall. I think as you look at the five twelve and even the four thirteen matchups, you've got, Maybe more so than in years past, it, it seemed like more of the favorites or one of the top two teams in some of these mid-major conferences all won. Um, and so you, you're not bumping up teams to the 12 line. that might normally have been a 13 or a 14 because somebody got upset. But if you look at an Oral Roberts at Charleston, um, both of those were right there. Oral Roberts was the only team to go undefeated in their league. Charleston had a good record all year long. Uh, Drake had been one of the top two teams in the Missouri Valley all year. VCU led the you know, Atlantic 10 wire to wire. And even as you get into 13 line, a Kent State team that IU plays, they didn't win the MAC, but they were right there. We're thought of as one of the better teams. Um, you know, Furman is on that line. So a lot of good teams in that range might make for maybe some more first-round upsets just because of the, the strength of those, those top mid-majors. Andy Bottoms taking some time with us of Assembly Call and Bracketologist for Inside the Hall. All right, let's let's step away from the big picture of the bracket. Let's zoom into the one that we, we all want to talk about. Indiana, Kent State, <laughs> Friday night, scouting report. What do you got, Andy? Uh it's a you know, Kent State on the seed list was the the top number thirteen seed, and I think probably if I you know, as I sat there projecting IU as a thirteen, uh maybe the team that, that I figured would be on the thirteen line you'd you'd least like to face. I think when you look at them, they've got two really experienced tough guards and sincere carry and Malik Jacobs. Um, they like to turn, you know, they, they turn people over as one of their strengths defensively. We've seen IU struggle with that at times over the course of the year. Uh, so if they start turning the ball over, giving easy baskets on the other end, then I think that uh, could potentially be, be a challenge for you. I think that's what you, you look at as an IU uh, supporter and, and maybe get a little bit worried about. I think if you look at the flip side of that, uh, Kent State, not a team that has a ton of size. Does that give an opportunity for IU to really uh, get Trace Jackson Davis going, uh, assuming they can get past the, the on-ball pressure of the guards? Seems like there's not a clear matchup for him uh, in that regard. It's not a team that shoots a high percentage from three. IU, uh, as anybody's following them, those has been burned by some uh, some hot shooting from opponents there. So I think that's a thing that, that may work in their favor a little bit. But uh, I definitely think it'll be a tough matchup. Kent State played. Uh, some of the other you know, the good teams on their schedule really well earlier in the season. Uh, only lost by five to Houston in a 49-44 to 44 game, which must have been an absolute rock fight. Uh, but, uh, you know, even only lost by seven at Gonzaga. Now, that was before Gonzaga had really started to turn things around and, and play better. Uh, but, a really, but a talented team, a, a veteran team, 
we had uh, Jared had on the assembly call a player from uh, uh, Evan Wilson from Akron who grew up an IU fan, and uh, he ended up coming on a, a kind of impromptu show that he did yesterday and gave some insight both as a guy who has watched IU play a lot, but also as somebody who played Kent State three times. So uh, gave some good insight and, and kind of reaffirmed, um, probably reaffirmed some of the things. If you want to be worried, reaffirm some of those. And if you, uh, you know, if you want to be optimistic, I think reaffirm some of those as well. Andy, I laugh after seeing how IU would be paired up against Kent State, a team that went 28-6. and six. Is it wrong that my first thought was nothing to do with basketball? It had in regards to their head coach. Now, that's Rob Senderoff, who was at IU for a couple years in early 2000s. Obviously, no one on this coaching staff, no one on the roster even was connected to that. But do you sense kind of from a fan base standpoint – there's there's a little bit more on the line than just advancing. Maybe there's I don't know payback, if you will, or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, maybe a little. I, okay. I don't know. Um, I, I, it's definitely interesting, and it's one of those where I, a lot of times the, the people will talk about the committee wanting to set up some of these matchups. I don't think that's always as true as people think it is. Once you factor in uh, some of the bracketing rules uh, in this case, you know, I think really you could have seen from a 13 seed based on what they do either. Uh, either Iona or Kent State go there. Whether they put Iona with, uh, you know, with UConn for a specific reason, I, I you know, tough to say. But those are the two teams that were most likely to to go to Albany uh, when you look at it geographically. So I think, um, you know, cer- certainly some history there. I don't know how much anybody on the, uh, you know, current staff is gonna uh, gonna have have great thoughts about about that either way. I think the the other one that really looms even larger is if I even get to the Sweet 16 to probably face Houston. I think that's probably the one that uh, yeah. maybe would maybe <laughs> would uh, get people a little bit more stirred up. Um, but you never know. I mean, Tom Green could run out and, and do the <laughs> Jeff Meyer, you you ruined our program or whatever whatever he said after that mission game. So, I mean, if that happens, all bets are off in terms of the emotion with the game. But uh, that's certainly a little bit extra there as, as to what you'd normally see against facing a Mac team, that's for sure. Yeah, I think that's more for this uh, passionate alumni base. That's that's yeah, we know absolutely. IU fans are passionate, and I still think there's a grudge there. But uh, that, that's why I brought that up more than anything. Yeah, oh, and, I'm sure I'm sure there I'm sure there is from some people. I, I have no doubt about that. <laughs> IU fans have a long memory when it comes to certain things. That's for sure. Andy, last question on my end. Another Andy and Andy Katz. Uh, how genuine he's being, I, I don't know. I mean, he always has talked about the Hoosiers in a positive light all year, but he has in one of his brackets uh, them making a Final Four run. When you look at the draw as a whole, I know you mentioned Houston's there. It would likely be Miami in the second round. Uh, obviously, it all depends on how well Indiana shoots the ball and their ability to move around if teams focused on Trace Jackson Davis. Is that a possibility in your mind based on the draw? I think it's a possibility because when they've played at their best this year, uh, I do think they have they've proven that they can they can play with some of the better teams in the country. The Big Ten has had a ton of parity this year, but um, you know, beating Purdue twice is, is certainly key. Xavier a three seed being able to win on the road there um, was an impressive non conference win, and and so I think at the high end, I do think that is a possibility. And, and as you look at the other five seeds, um, I don't think anybody probably wanted to play St. Mary's again after last year. Um, probably a better matchup against Miami than you know than a Duke team or, or something like that. So it didn't get the you know toughest of the five seeds as you think through it that way. And if you can regroup after that first weekend, uh, I think things can potentially get interesting. You don't know uh, again the status of Sasser for for Houston. For IU, it really r- relies on. Obviously, they can't have an off game from from Trace or Jalen Hutchinson. Not breaking any ground there. But I think the most important thing outside of that is trying to figure out who else you can count on besides those guys. Uh, saw some. 
it, it feels like a, a switch where one guy turns on and one guy turns off as you go through the season. So you had in the Big Ten tournament, Tamar Bates and, and Malik Renew really play key roles in those games. But you also had Trey Galloway struggle. Uh, you had Race Thompson struggle a little bit um, after playing such a great game uh, against Michigan on his senior day. So I, I think it's a matter of trying to figure out how many of those guys you can really get going to contribute to take a little bit of the scoring load off uh, of those teams. And, and uh, again, we talk about this a lot with Big Ten teams and how they're allowed to play during the regular season, how that translates to the tournament. I use a team that even by Big Ten standards foul a lot this year. Um, there are certain guys that cannot afford to get in foul trouble as you as you look at it that way. So I think that's the other the other key for them. But um, if they can get everybody going, I think the you have two superstars, and and those things can really help you in in March. Hood Shapino has been a guy who's played with great maturity, probably beyond his years, and stayed calm in some tough situations. So uh, if he can continue to do that, uh, anything is is possible uh, because most IU fans probably still uh, being. Uh, Maybe not even cautiously optimistic, maybe just cautious, I think is probably the better way to, better way to say it. But uh, there, there's some things to like about the draw, I would say. Andy, appreciate the breakdown. Congrats on completing another season of Bracketology here and uh, enjoy the start of March Madness. We appreciate the time. All right, well, do. Thanks again for having me. That's Andy Bottoms of Assembly Call and Inside the Hall. This is the Fan Midday Show on 93.5107.5 The Fan. Jimmy Cook and Scott Agnes, Eddie Garrison guiding us throughout the afternoon. Coming to you from the DriveHubor.com studios. Excitement begins with free agency for the Colts last night as they, at least in their hope, sure up kicker for the long run, signing Matt Gay to the largest contract for a free agent kicker in NFL history. Chap was, of course, on that story. Our next guest, the Dean Mike Chapel of Fox 59 and CBS 4. Uh, Chappie, my immediate reaction was, that's a lot of money for a kicker. What are we doing? I, I've Scott helped walk me back off the ledge a little bit. Uh, you noting that he's in the top six, top five, rather, of most accurate kickers of all time. That helps me a little bit as well. Your overall thoughts on the signing, too much money, enough to get a long-term solution there, or was McLaughlin really not good enough to warrant another season in the blue and white? Well, I think he was good enough, but then, you know, put Chase McLaughlin's resume up against Matt Gay's, and it's, you know, with all due respect, they, they don't compare. Yeah, I mean, in a vacuum, that's a lot of money for a kicker. But building a roster, and, and again, it's until we know what, what, what else they do, you know, right guard, receiver, pass rusher. Then you say, what are you doing? Well, but this is one thing you need to address. Go back and, you know, if the kicker makes a kick uh, in the season opener at, at Houston, if Vinatieri doesn't have the bad year in, in 2019, how things are different, isn't it good just to have that position to where, barring the unforeseen, it's taken care of for the next four years, maybe maybe six, eight years. So it, it, it's easy to say, well, he's just a kicker. What are you doing? But I just – games come down to, to, to plays and kicks. Yes, it's a lot of money, but it's it's peace of mind knowing that that area is taken care of. 
Talking with Mike Chappell of CBS 4 and Fox 59. And, and yeah, Mike, that was my exact thought here. If I'm Chris Ballard with that giant whiteboard, I can check that off in my office and just be so confident and comfortable going into this season that a, a position that has been an issue since Vinny, since, what, 2019, is now right. behind us. Uh, since 2018, really. Because that's when Vinny was really good was in 18. Yeah, and, and so that had been that ongoing issue. So now you have that behind them. Uh, what do you see as next on their to-do list as they go through the next week or two and sit back and kind of try to f- cipher through the deals and see what makes sense? Well, I, I always come down to At some point, they've got to bring in a receiver, whether it's Paris Campbell or somebody else, maybe Paris Campbell and somebody else. And what are you doing at defense at pass rush? I, I just, it would be so uh, risky to say we're going to let Ngakwe walk and we're going to, and we think that, that Quiddy Pay and Dio can be our starting ends and, and we'll build around him. I think that's just risky, risky. So until you get those two spots taken care of, and, and, and yes, quarterbacks in April, but who's your veteran quarterback? There's got to be a veteran quarterback here to help the rookie. You know, a lot of us has thrown around Gardner Minshew because of his two years with with Steichen in Philly. It needs to be somebody. And I would prefer getting that guy sooner rather than later because when you wait for later, you know, the the cupboard can be really bare. So I, I think it's important to do those three things. And then, you know, right guard, there's always issues. There's always issues. Right guard, uh, probably a cornerback now that Tayshon's gone, which we all anticipated, is Kenny Moore coming back. So there's still, in my mind, five or six boxes to check, but it's only the second day of free agency. Chap, Scott had brought this up earlier. You mentioned veteran quarterbacks. I mean, the elephant in the room in terms of salaries that are on the books is Matt Ryan. If they cut him any time now, they would save, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think Zach Kiefer had this, $19 million or so in cap space. Is that on the horizon? Is there a reason it hasn't happened yet? Would that open things, in theory, more open for them with free agency upon us? Well, why nothing on that front just yet? Because they don't need to yet. Okay. It's, it's, it's $17.2 million, Okay. and he'll count, he'll count $18 million dead money regardless. Uh, it's got to be done by Friday. It's the second or third day of the new league. I guess it's the second day would be Friday. But it, it, it's the culture like a lot of teams, and you don't do things until you need to do things. And, you know, th- that's everyone anticipates. It makes zero sense roster-wise or financially to bring Matt Ryan back. It just, you know, so many of us were on board with this last offseason. Anyone who says they weren't okay, I'll take your word for it, but we all thought that he was bringing, being brought in to a very, very good situation for him in the offense. It didn't work. You move on. You're going to address that in the draft, and you just can't have a, a, a quarterback once he can be 38 or whatever and, and showed certain decline last year at $35 million. Can't do it. And I'm expecting Nick Bowles to be cut or retire so they've got work to do there, and they have got all these other things that they've done. Matt Gay and bringing back Taekwon and and EJ Speed and whoever you sign, they need to do that. But they need to just hit a home run, maybe a triple, with it with the quarterback in April. If they don't if they don't do that, 
I, none of this other is really going to matter taking them where they need to go. So they need to do, do all these complimentary pieces, but they have got to get the quarter right, quarterback right in, uh, in April. Joined with Mike Chappell here on the Fan Midday Show. I think from your last answer, kind of suggested you're, you're all in on the draft in terms of a quarterback position. But, you know, there is the looming Lamar Jackson situation. Would you see any reason, Chappie, that the Colts should give that some kind of consideration? Yeah, I, I guess you got to talk about it. I, I'm torn. It would be great to have, uh, what is he, 20, is he 26? 26, yep. 26. Former MVP, I would give up two first-round draft picks for him if Absolutely. that's what it would take. I would. I just would. But are you willing to, 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 to lock in, I don't know, $200 million on a guy who has missed time? I, it, it would limit you greatly budget-wise with a small market team what you could do to help the team around him. So, and if you, if you can get the right guy – you know, in the draft, which it, that's, I don't want to say a crapshoot, but I don't think anyone believes that all four of these quarterbacks are going to make it. So it, it is something of a risk. Yet you get him on a rookie deal, and so for four years you can really do a lot of good things. Generally, I would like the proven commodity. It, it, you know, the, the Forrest Buckner for the 13th pick a few years ago, I, I do that every day, every day. Mm-hmm. This is different. I would, I would trust. You had to trust them, or, or you would have fired them. I would trust my personnel guys to get it right in April, and, and, and make that work as opposed to the Lamar Jackson thing. But I could argue either way. But I would prefer the rookie with all the benefits that come with that. The Dean Mike Chapel of Fox 59 and CBS 4 taking some time with us here in the drivehuber.com studio. You can follow him on Twitter at mchapel 51 Chap, you mentioned April's draft. We haven't talked to you since the Panthers made the blockbuster trade to go up to number one. You and I are both in that same camp of emphasizing they need to get a quarterback in this draft, but now it's no longer, a, if you want to use a cliche, in control of their own destiny in that regard. They have to wait to see how the rest of the board plays out. Your overall thoughts on that trade by the Panthers? Was it too rich for your blood? And where does that put things now in a perspective of, in theory, if the top available go, you're looking at Levis or Richardson, assuming nobody else trades up to three? Well, is it too rich for my blood? Not, not if it's the right guy. Right. If you get, if you get your guy, I, I don't know what's too rich. There's probably something that's too rich. But if they're convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that it's young or Stroud or Richardson or whatever, Richardson would be, would be quite a story to go to number one. But if, if they really like the guy, it's not too rich. What it does to the Colts, I mean, it, it does hurt them because ha, ha, they can't get the one or two now. Uh, I it, and so much everything everything depends on how does Chris Ballard rank these quarterbacks and how does that align with other teams. I get the impression that if you pull ten teams, they would all have these guys rated differently. Yeah. So if if he really believes there's three guys, or that his 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 one of his top three guys would be there at four, then you stay there. But that's just so risky. I would be in favor of moving up to three. If you, if again if 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 you believe there's a guy there that warrants placing your career on, because that's that's what they're going to be doing. 
And if, if he's the guy and they believe whether it's Levis or whether it's Richardson or one of the other two guys fall to him, then you do it. But it, I'm telling you, fans ought to just be braced. <laughs> if they don't think that guy's worth it, they're not even going to move up one spot. So now, now if they go to stand four and take what would be the best player in the draft, because quarterbacks are going to go one, two, three by somebody, then I, I would like to know what your plan B is at quarterback. Are you going to bring in the bridge again and, and try to get that guy next year? I, at some point, they simply need to put their foot down and say, no, we're going to take the risk this year. It looks like there's some good quarterbacks and do it. But I'm telling you, I, I, Chris can, Chris has sort of said this, and we can either listen or not listen. If he doesn't believe that guy's there, they'll stay at four and do what's best for the team. I just would hope it's a quarterback. And, Mike, that's where it's be a tough spot right there, being in four and not two or three, because you just don't know who might be available. And you're right, if you don't have the convictions in whomever is still there at four, you might need to take that alternative route, even though at some point it feels like you just need to take swings at a, a legitimate young quarterback and give him a chance. That seems to be where the Colts are at at this point. And that's kind of where, I don't want to say they painted themselves into this corner, but their options really haven't been very good in the draft, like the one mm-hmm. year they could have with Justin Fields, maybe I don't know. So they, the, the the timing just hasn't been right. So they've gone the the veteran route. It worked with Rivers. It didn't work with Wentz or uh, or or Matt Ryan. So yeah, at some point you just have to say, okay, I'm going to take a swing now. But if you're going to take a swing, you at least got to have some conviction. At the sure. Game. I mean, you just can't you just can't say I'm going to take this guy because he's the last one. But if you don't take a quarterback in the top four, you take the best defensive player, which would be a, a, a great addition. And then I guess you're trying to find a guy in the second round that you can develop, and that then that increases the importance of finding the old veteran bridge that people are getting sick and tired of hearing for this year. You're not going to draft a quarterback in the second or third round and make him your you know, starter at some point next year, I wouldn't imagine. So, but th- this is their best chance to, to get off the, the, the carousel, get their guy, and sink or swim. Because it, it, if they keep going down the route of not getting the young guy to develop, they're going to get fired again. So, you, at some point, you just have to, to, to hope that, that, that your draft spot at four or three, again, I'd move to three, but coincides with a quarterback that makes sense is worth it and gives you a chance as a franchise for the next six to eight years. Yeah, it sure feels like they're at a a point in time where they just need to go all in on whomever they believe in and give it a try and see where it takes you from there rather than playing the the old hits like they have over the last couple of years. And I know much like this. I I like oldies. But at some point, right. some point you got to get something new. Chappie, I'm curious. You got you, you started covering the Colts from the beginning. Obviously, media landscape, free agency, a lot different. For you this week, how is it most different than, say, even a decade ago? Things are immediate. It, it's crazy how the league says, well, you know, the new year, league year starts Wednesday. Teams can talk with other teams. Or players could talk with other teams starting Monday at whatever it was, noon or one o'clock, whatever it was. And deals were getting done immediately, immediately. 
uh, I think the first one got done like 45 minutes after the it opened. And now these are agreements, but it, 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 you know, years and years ago, I mean, the, the, you couldn't do this until agency started. So that's the main thing, and it's so immediate on on the internet on social media because these agents, yeah. it, it's it, the, the insiders work their ass off. They do. I'll give them that. But more these these agents have got guys on speed dial, and it's 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 kind of interesting to see who gets it first because then the next guy gets it fifteen seconds later, then fifteen seconds later again. That's the the big thing is agents have really gotten uh, savvy about using insiders and the internet to get their their message out, which that that's the, the good and the bad of it. I'm not sure there's a bad of it unless you get. You know, b- bad tweets from insiders to get bad information, but it's totally different from what it used to be. Totally different. The Dean Mike Chapel of Fox Nine and CBS Four joining us, Chap. For you, as you continue to to cover the free agency path, I know you kind of mentioned this last night on Twitter, but Bobby Okereke obviously uh, ends up with the Giants, and you mentioned already Speed and Lewis being retained by the Colts. Uh, throw Matt Gay in there as well. Anything to this point in the early goings that have surprised you by the Colts? Other than Matt Gay, I, I, I it, it's funny how we all, I started to Kevin Bowler, all of us thought Chase McLaughlin was a no doubt guy you had to target. You know, he was your, probably your offensive MVP. Everybody agreed with that. Well, if everybody agrees with that, then you really got to like Matt Gay because they, they, they went better than. than Chase McLaughlin, I feel bad for Chase because he did everything yeah. and more. I mean, he, without him, they would have really, really been bad. Uh, but, no, that, that's the only one, the fact that they went so so heavy on the kicker. But, again, like we talked early, that, that, that's, that, that's sort of like, not the same, that's sort of like getting Vinatieri in 06 because he, he, was, he was the guy, and now Matt, got, Matt Gay is – not not the guy Justin Tucker's the guy, but he's one of those top three or four. So he, he, that's taken care of now for the future, which is what Vinny gave you. The difference with Vinny is he came in with a with a really really good team. But uh, that's the only thing. I, no one expected Okereke back. We all expected DJ Speed back. We expected uh, Taekwon Lewis back. Yeah, you just want Taekwon Lewis to stay healthy. He's a good kid. Kid, he's he's a man, but he, he's a good guy to have around. He works his ass off. A great rotational player. The next thing I'm curious about is is the market for Paris Campbell. It's a very very thin wide receiver market. I think the Colts would like to have him back, but the fact that it's a thin receiver market, you know, does that mean he's going to get overpaid? Which, if that's the case, good for him. He's been through hell and back. I'd like to see him back. I'd like to. See I'd like to know where what's up with him because I really would like to know if, if he's gone, where do the Colts go for that third receiver behind the two that they've got? Mike, I'm curious here moving forward, Have what's the latest just on Shaq Leonard? What's the optimism level, if there is some right now, about what he might look like come next season? That was one of the questions I asked Chris Ballard. He was at the, he was at the podium at the Combine, and then we got him on the side, and the first thing I asked him is, do you have any update on Shaq? Because right now we're about the same. I don't know. It's been three or four months from from his surgery, which is almost the exact time that he was last time 
when he, he was coming back from the first surgery and he's activated and then he plays or practices, that's kind of where we are. So I asked him, do you have any confidence or, or any update on where he might be? And he said, well, we're doing, you know, you know he, he, just, he just sort of was, was very, you know, vague about it. But it's so important that he, obviously, he, that he comes back to be the guy because he, the defense was pretty good last year without him. But they missed his takeaways, and they invested so heavily in him that if he's not back to where he was after this one, you just have to think that he's probably not going to get there, which would be really bad for the team, but more so for Shaq because he's done everything, everything he needs to do, and he's itching to get back. And this team and Shaq needs to get he needs to get back to where he was uh, pre-injury. Yeah, and it's one of those things where the Colts, at least internally, need some kind of clarity as they enter this week a little bit to help inform maybe the route they take based on, uh, you know, what they expect for his health to be right there. Because I saw sure. a defense that was plenty good enough to advance in the playoffs. It just the offense couldn't score more than 17 points per game. So the defense is there especially even more so than if Shaq's available, even if it's for three-fourths of the season. Yeah, you just got to – you know, the league's all, all about having roster-wise is do you have playmakers? And they had playmakers last year on defense with – two years ago with, with Shaq and Kenny Moore and, and Buck. But they, they, they lacked that a little bit last year. They were pretty good on defense. Again, like I agree with you, they were playoff caliber until they flat wore out trying to carry an awful offense – and then injury started kind of pecking away at it. But his return to, to you know, to what he used to be, it just makes huge a huge difference. And if he's not there, you know, well, you just lost Okereke. So that's a, then, then if, if Shaq's not back, all of a sudden linebackers are really, really thin and vulnerable position. Fox 9 and CBS 4's Mike Chappell taking some time with us here in the DriveHooper.com studios. Chap, I – posed this question to Stephen Holder yesterday. I want to pose it to you as well because you've covered the team longer than anybody and you know the way this organization at least generally likes to operate. This is more for Colts fans because there's obviously antsiness there. They want to be back to contending in the South, contending in the AFC, contending across the league. It's a process. We know it's a it's a building blocks process that you would hope prior to the Panthers trade starts with a young quarterback this year. In your mind with new coach in tote, and everything that's gone on with the organization. Is this a two-year process for Chris Bauer? As in, like, regardless of what happens this season, barring, you know, 0-17, that he's going to have some cushion and wiggle room more so than if this was still Frank Reich here for another year? Yeah, I thought, I think the fact that, the, that Jim Mercer put his trust in Ballard and that trust was going to be in getting the young quarterback, I think that automatically gave... You know, barring just a total, total catastrophe season-wise, I thought it gave him another two years, maybe three, which some fans may like, some may not. But to think they're going to, you know, bring in the young quarterback and have the bridge guy to get to that guy and and be more than just competitive next year is kind of crazy. So I I think this is at least a two-year – I don't want to say at least – it is a two-year project to get back to where you want to be the division right now sort of belongs to Jacksonville, which really is, is hard to say. It just <laughs> is after all the years. But but they seem to have gotten it right with the coach. The, more important, the quarterback. You know, Houston's a mess. I don't know what Tennessee's doing. It, lo- it looks like they're blowing it up. 
but they've still got Tannehill and Derrick Henry, so they're not totally blowing it up. It, but it, and, until you can get your quarterback in place and start growing as a franchise, it looks like everyone's chasing Jacksonville, which, again, we've said that in the past, and then they've, they've been they've shown us that they're Jacksonville. But this feels different. I think Jacksonville's yeah. got it right. So you better chase them down and get your roster built to where you can contend with them. I'm talking with Mike Chappell here on the Fan Midday Show. Uh, Mike, I'm curious, do you think, obviously they need more weapons, more athleticism, and particularly on the offensive side. Do you see them more likely to address that and have a wide receiver, for instance, grow with the quarterback they presumably draft? Do you think that's most likely? Probably. What's going to be interesting is, you know, when, when we all thought that they move up, might move up to one with Chicago, that it would cost certainly flipping first-round picks and probably this year's second-round pick. Well, I'm not sure that they would need to do that moving up to three. So maybe they go again, second-round receiver, which, you know, they've done that three times and and had decent success with it, really. Uh, good success. You know, Paris Campbell's injuries obviously have hurt him. So bring the young guy in. But, you know, you got to have a, vet, a, a more of a veteran guy, and that's why I think it's, it's kind of important – to bring Paris Campbell back, you know, if you believe that last year, you know, when he's on the season, on the field all season, that he's past the injury thing, it just makes no sense to have to put your future in a, in a in a rookie quarterback, and then not surround him with with better skill players. You know, you've got the running back, you've got two good receivers, you got you got some promise at tight end, but you need another receiver or two, certainly two if Paris Campbell doesn't come back. So that needs to be a focus offseason and in the draft. He's the Dean, Mike Chappell of Fox 59 and CBS4. Chap, always good to talk to you. Looking forward to continuing to follow along as free agency unfolds, and I'm sure we'll talk to you next week. Okay, keep in touch, guys. Will do. That's the Dean, Mike Chappell. Always good to... Always so good and thorough. Get his insights and yep. figure out as we kind of wade through the weeds, as it were, of what the Colts are going to do the rest of the free agency period and figure out where their emphasis is. I know we got to take a break, but when we come back, I want to, since we have Scott here, I want to get his thoughts on the current path or direction for the Indiana Pacers. They, they continue to confuse me game by game of, <laughs> of, of what they're trying yeah. to do, if they're flirting with the play-in, if it's just not meant to be. Eddie knows where I stand on that. We'll remind listeners where I am if play-in or... What yeah, talking that's, about? That's Playoffs? Pretty much puts it all to bed right there. But I have a new stance now that we've had Chappie and now that we've had Holder address where Ballard's timeline is right now in terms of his tenure as Colts GM. I have a different take on that that I want to get Scott's thoughts on as well as his overall take on that conversation with Chap and where the Pacers are headed with, what, 10 games, 11 games to go? Yeah. Something like that. We'll get on that and more after this on the Fan Midday Show, 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. You're listening to the Fan Midday Show. Scott Agnes, Jimmy Cook, and Eddie Garrison. Man, if that doesn't give you goof, goosebumps, I don't know what's going on with you. Pleased to be joined here on the guest line by Sparrow Didis. You'll hear him this weekend and throughout the NCAA tournament on CBS with a, a great crew. Debbie Antonelli, who used to be a TV 
analyst for the Indiana Fever, along with sideline reporter AJ Ross. Sparrow Ditas joining us. Sparrow, you're going to hear a lot of the songs. What is you most anticipating about this upcoming week? Hey guys, good to be with you. Um, I'm everything. You know, this is this is the the, the favorite time of year for me and, and uh, for a lot of my colleagues that. Uh, that- I have the privilege to work this tournament. Um, you know, I have the good fortune to call pros, guys, NFL and NBA, but there's there's always been something about this tournament, uh, the raw emotion of this tournament um, that I think just kind of reminds us why we all started playing sports as kids and why we fell in love with, with this profession and having a chance to do this for a living. There's, you know, there's something about the finality of this tournament for, you know, for 98, 99% of the, the student athletes that play in this thing, that this is it. You know, this is the biggest moment of their uh, athletic career and basketball lives. And so it just kind of adds to the the weight of the musher and, and I've been blessed with some unbelievable games over the years. So I just, I can't wait to get to Albany. Uh, super excited about these matchups. Obviously, we know the Hoosiers really well, had a chance to, to call a couple of their games this year. So we could be more excited about this group of teams that we have and, and, and getting these games going on Friday. Sparrow, it's Jimmy. Appreciate you making time for us. We're going to dive in, obviously, to some of those matchups you're covering, including Indiana-Kent State in a little bit. But you mentioned just how appreciative you are to be able to be a part of March Madness and, and being on the call for a number of years. Wondering for you, maybe you don't have a rank, but like, what's the most memorable game or memorable shot or call that you've been a part of over your time uh, just exclusively to March Madness with your tenure with Turner and CBS? Uh, that... that- that's an easy for me. My very first one, my literally my very first tournament, 2010, and my very first game. So obviously, day one we do four games in one day, which is, you know, we've done it. It's it's kind of hard to describe what it's like. And my very first game, it was Murray State against Bolt in um, 13-4 matchup. Uh, I believe it was, or a three fourteen. I can't remember. Murray State barely eked into the tournament. Super under. It was one of those early round matchups where you thought, you know, there's no shot for this team to have any chance to win this game, and they won it on a buzzer beating three right at the final second. And I'll never forget. You know, we made the call completely crazy. The place is going nuts. And I remember going to break, going to commercial, going off the air, leaning back into my chair and reminding myself that, oh my God, we have three more games to go. (laughs) My voice was already starting to crack. Um, I was in a complete panic, but luckily I got got my way through and and leaned on my partner, Bob Wenzel at the time. But it was just like a really quick early reminder of what this tournament is like. Uh, It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And again, there's just everything about this tournament, everything about what it feels like to work it, what it feels like to bear as a spectator, I think, than, than any other event that we have in this country. We're joined by CBS play-by-play announcer Sparrow Ditas here on the Fin Midday Show. Sparrow, I'm curious as an announcer myself, do you guys have like a group text going on with Ian Eagle, Jim Nance, and the crew of just like, I don't know, your anticipations <laughs> or, or how you're preparing or a phone conversation you you just had that was fantastic. Anything like that? We do, we do. And that's been one of the really cool things about doing this. You know, I grew up listening to Ian Eagle, right? I mean, I grew up in, in the Northeast and Ian was one of my early heroes. And I've got a chance to to get really friendly with him. He's become a mentor. Ian, Kevin Harlan, uh, who's another, you know, broadcast God in my life. Uh, I've gotten a chance to, to have a nice relationship with. So Kevin, Ian, 
Ryan Anderson, um, one of the all timers and one of the great guys in this profession. So yeah, we're, we're in a group text and, um, those guys have really helped me because, you know, again, as I mentioned, this is so different in prepping for this and, you know, with the internet and, and with so much information out there, the challenge in prepping for this is just realizing, you know, what you need, what you need to focus on, because you can get overwhelmed with how much info and then research, uh, information is out there. So those guys have helped me prepare and it's taken me about 10 to finally realize how to get ready. So everyone's <laughs> super pumped. Everyone's, everyone's excited. Everyone's not today or tomorrow. And, uh, and all. one more announcing question before we get into the meat of the conversation with how you and those certain things, I'm curious, how much do you consciously at the start of games kind of have to ease into it? Meaning, you know, the, the biggest play is not two minutes into the game, but the emotions, that intro song, the start of March Madness, you're carrying a lot and all of us are feeling leading into the big games. Yeah, there's, you know, it's, it, again, it's like running a marathon. You know, you don't, you, you have to be cognizant yeah. of, of the longevity, the, the length of the day. But at the same time, you got to do, you know, that, that first matchup, those two teams, I mean, that's it. You know, for those two teams, that's their only game of the day. So you want to do them justice. So if there's some haymakers being thrown, some big plays being made at the beginning of the game, you have to strike that right balance. I mean, you don't want to be uh, catatonic, right? You have three games left. You want to do these kids justice. And that, that to me, guys, is the biggest responsibility that I think we all feel, all of us that are lucky enough to work this tournament, is that again, this is their moment. You know, this is, this is their Super Bowl. This is their NBA finals. This is their world series. So you just, I want to do these players just to want to give them the respect they deserve coaches, um, especially the smaller schools, you know, that don't play on the big stage. It's always fun to be there for the practices the day before. That's almost as fun as the games, watching some of the lower seeded teams come out onto that stage, you know, usually into these big NBA arenas, a lot of times, and the wide-eyed look on their faces to, to observe that is real. And so, yeah, it's a great question. Um, and that part that I've really taken a couple of years to figure out is how to how to pace myself during the course of these games. And um, and it's just something you you have to go through. You need the reps, and and you know you learn how to conserve your energy. Turner Sports and CBS Sports Zone. Sparrow Ditas taking some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Sparrow, you you could you could pander if you want, or if it's generally your favorite matchup of the day, you could share that as well. But you look at your assignments. Scott touched on it. VCU St. Mary's, Iona, UConn, Drake, Miami, and of course Kent State, IU. Obviously, you're still in prep mode. But off the bat, uh, which matchup, if any, are you most excited for? Which storyline present in those matchups are you most intrigued by in your prep process? I think there's a little something with all of these games. Uh, my first thought when I saw our list of games was Iona Yukon. Again, growing up in the Northeast, you know, the Hurley family has been basketball royalty, part of the country where I grew up. Uh, Bob Hurley Sr., uh, Danny and Bobby's father, obviously, for the hardcore basketball fan, they know who he is, Hall of Famer, legendary high school career. And then obviously his two sons that have gone on to have great success. And so, you know, you have the Hurleys, Danny, who's come into his own as a head coach. And now uh, across the way, here comes Rick Pitino, you know, the guy who was basically in basketball exile just a couple of years ago. And suddenly he's not only in the spotlight with this current Iona team, uh, second straight tournament for them or second in the last three years. Um, 
And now who his future holds with all the reports that, that, you know, he could be headed to St. John's yeah. or Georgetown or even Texas tech. So there's a lot of juiciness with that one, but I tell you the most matchup, I think, and an evenly matched matchup will be that IU Kent state game, because for people that don't, don't know, don't know a lot about Kent state guys, this is, this is one of those nightmare matchups that no coach wants to see as a higher seeded team in that first round matchup, really well balanced, really tough they played two of the best teams in the country really tough until the last second they led it houston in a true road game again in the country and they went to gonzaga uh, to spokane and almost knocked off the zags uh, a team that had won 68 straight games at home they should have won both of those games and so i think those two results tell you all you need to know about how good this kent state team is they at this moment, like they're they're going to win this game. That's how confident they are, and and that's how good they are. So, I think Mike Woodson has his hands full. I love what what he's done with with the Hoosiers. I think he's brought this program back onto the map, uh, so to speak. And and it's going to be a fun one. It really is. It's going to be a great great game to end the day on Friday night. And joined with Sparrow Ditas here. He'll be on TBS all Friday. And there is a reason why that IU Kent State game is a 9.55 scheduled tip. And we all know that's really going to be then like 10.20 p.m. But we've heard you on the, the call mm-hmm. for many games of IU this season. Uh, what you, you have unique access, right? Can go to shoot-arounds and different things. What have you gleaned from Mike Woodson, who, like yourself, has been in the NBA and has that experience as well? Uh, what have you taken away from your conversations with him and, and about the program he's trying to reestablish here? Well, I, I go back with Woody a little bit. It, uh, we, we overlapped with the Knicks for a couple of years. So I, I've always had a soft spot for Mike Woodson. I, I, you know, I look back at what he did with the Knicks during a stretch of years that, you know, for anyone who's followed the NBA notes, the Knicks were historically bad for a long time. And Mike Woodson was really the first coach who was able to turn that franchise, get them back into the playoffs. And, you know, it was the first time observing him up close every day. And I just, I love the way he approached his job. Um, and, and what has struck me about Woody now going back to his roots, and, and that, of course, has been such a great story. You know, the, one of IU's favorite sons comes back home uh, at this stage of his life and his career to see this and how much he it has been really cool. And I had a chance to go sit with him in his office for a couple of minutes before the two games we did at, uh, at Assembly Hall this year. And you could just sense the joy that he has but at the same time, Woody is still who he is. You know, he's still that hardline disciplinarian. And that's one of the things that's really impressed me most about what he has been able to do with this young team. Because as you guys know, Mike was in the NBA for a number of years and no one ever envisioned him going back to college. And it's such a different animal to coach a pro at the NBA level compared to coaching these young kids, these student athletes. And you just wondered, boy, you know, when you heard the news, Mike Woodson back to IU, that's a great story, but how's that going to work? Old school guy, you know, these kids are different, but it has been such a seamless transition for him. And, and these kids have really taken to the way he coaches and, and both games we did this year, uh, Michigan state and I can't remember the other game, but we went to practice the day before each game and both times, the first time with Jordan Geronimo and the second time with Tamar Bates, 
he lit into these guys during practice. Uh, there was something that he he was seeing that he didn't like. Lit into Jordan Geronimo. Next day, Geronimo goes out and plays his best game of the season. And the same exact thing happened a week or two later when we were there with Tamar Bates. Um, you know, lit into him, uh, kind of kind of undressed him a little bit in front of the group. And the next day, Tamar Bates comes out, hits some huge shots, and and was the best player on the floor. So I left that second game thinking, boy, this this Mike Woodson um, move back to to the game has been has been incredible. Um, he's put his stamp on this team. He's brought them back into the into the spotlight, and uh, it's really cool to watch from afar. Sparrow, I want to flip to the other side of the state. I know it's not in your list of games you're calling, but I know you've obviously followed them uh, throughout the season as well. Your thoughts just on the draw and the way Purdue closed the season, winning both the regular season of Big Ten title and and where you see them as March approaches here in just a couple days. Yep. Purdue guys has been the closest thing to me for or to, to a dominant team that we just haven't seemed to have in college this year. I know Alabama has been terrific. Houston has been really, really good. But Purdue, you know, they they certain elements that the other team has. And, and Zach is as unique a player, I think, as we've seen in the college game in a number. The one thing we don't know about them is they're, you know, are they battle-tested now on the big, big stage? Obviously, they've, they've played really well here the last couple of weeks. Uh, Zach Eady's a monster, but this team and this program has something to prove now at this stage of the year. And, and obviously this has been a recurring theme with Matt Pinner, who's long been one of my favorite coaches, love his approach. Um, you know, he's got that beautiful basketball mind that everyone talks about, really great temperament. And and I think he's a guy who's had to reinvent himself a little bit in terms of how he recruits how he coach, how he approaches his his uh, job from a holistic level, um, and and so let's see. I mean, this again is about matchups, but when you when you look at any national contending team, they have all the elements that you need. And I think last year, the lack of defense in the big moments was something that really came back to haunt them. This team defends better. Um, the question is, will they be able to defend at this stage of the season and on this? You know, on this stage where it's just different, guys. There's a familiarity when you get to the conference tournament. It's it's still high pressure, but you know, you're, you're same teams. There's a familiarity, uh, you know, familiar part of the country, familiar arenas. When you get here to the NCAA tournament, it, you know, there's an unfamiliarity. You're not quite as comfortable. Um, the cameras, the the bright lights get a little brighter, and so it's just. You know, at the end of the day, these are college kids. You don't know how they're gonna they're fair, how they're gonna fare, and then you know, in these types of moments. So, um, we'll we'll have to wait and see what happens. But I love their team. I love the makeup of the team. I love the young guards. Lawyer has been terrific. You know, one of the the top uh, freshman backcourt players in the country. And now it's a matter of how they react when all goes up and and the money's on the table. Spears, appreciate the time. Have a blast this week and moving forward, and we'll all be watching on TBS on Friday. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Sparrow. Scott, Jimmy, I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. That's Sparrow Ditas, CBS, but throughout the tournament, of course, it's on a variety of networks.